This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk direct from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Lisa Unger about her gripping new psychological thriller, In the Blood. Then PW Reviews director Louisa Ermolino will give us a preview of our upcoming spring announcements issue. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. What do we have in nonfiction? We have one title. It's uh, one new title, I should say, on the uh, nonfiction list. And this one is a debut at number one, the top of the list, by former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. Uh, he served from 2006 to 2011, uh, 2011 under the both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. The name of the book is called Duty, Memoirs of a Secretary at War. Uh, and in its first week, it sold 80,000 copies. Wow. So, uh, you know, we, we call it, as Gates in this uh, richly textured memoir tells it, the Department of Defense had, quote, alienated just about everyone in town, unquote, and the new secretary, quote, had a lot of fences to mend. We, we say that Gates frequently presents himself as the only adult in the room, uh, but given his accounts of uh, administration, micromanagement, and operational meddling, his call for restoring civility and mutual respect is a cry from the heart. So, um, uh, But this is obviously getting a lot of attention, and um, that first week, 80,000 copies, not too bad. I think that that's more than probably the, the combined sales of the five or six books in the next spots on the list. You know, you're absolutely right, Rose. Yeah, and the next one, uh, second one down, I'm, I'm, I was is about twelve thousand copies. So just to show you the difference. Yeah. The next one, in the next three or four, about between eight and twelve thousand copies. Just to show you the difference in, uh, in the spread of the uh, the sales between uh, nonfiction books. Well, on the fiction side, uh, James Patterson debuts. And number two, this oh. is really unusual. Usually James Patterson is number one with a bullet, um, but this is this is a, a bit of a different book from him. It's called mm -hmm. First Love. It's co-authored by Emily Raymond. It's the first time I can remember him having a female co-author, though I'm not a James Patterson mm -hmm. expert. Maybe there have right. been a couple in the past. But uh, this, if you look at the cover of the book, it's got a couple standing in the water and kissing, and this this is not what you think of when you think James Patterson. Uh, and the not book, at all. Not at all. So the book uh, draws from Patterson's own past, apparently, and uh, is all about first love. And oh, wow. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe a little bit hesitant on, sure. uh, on that bestseller list, not quite pushing all the way up to number one, because people don't really know what to make of it, and yeah. I'm not sure he's yet able to reach the the love story demographic. Right. But it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Well, it's still impressive. I, I guess that, you know, he is at number two. Uh, oh, sure. Know, I mean, there's nothing one, to sneeze so, at. So it's, it's, it is kind of interesting, especially with such a departure as this one seems. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the other big book on the list is uh, at number 10, Alan Bradley's The Dead in Their Vaulted Arches. We gave this a uh, starred review in Publishers Weekly when we said the mystery is personal in this excellent sixth novel featuring a precocious 11-year-old sleuth in post-World War II England. Mm. Now, you know, this this is not Harriet the Spy we're talking about. There there may be an an 11-year-old girl at the heart of it, but uh, she's quite an accomplished genuine detective and uh, you know this is a very very intimate look at uh, life in post-world war ii england we Mm. say the solution to the murder is typically neat and the conclusion nicely sets up future books Mm. so fans of this one will be assured of more to come wow fantastic and that's it for the bestseller list um not not a lot of movement but uh, I'm sure there are some more big books coming out soon. Yes, yeah, looking into February. Well, actually, the end of January, then February. And some of those are going to be featured in our announcements issue. Yeah, you're absolutely is, right, yeah. Which is coming up next Monday, and Louise is going to give us a preview of that later in the show. Oh, looking forward to it. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Lisa Unger will reveal the secrets of writing suspense. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Lisa Unger on the line. She's the author of In the Blood, the third suspense novel set in a secluded upstate New York town. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book. Well, In the Blood is um, In the Blood was inspired by an article that I read in uh, in the New York Times Magazine about um, children that were displaying the, um, the psychopathic behavior as early as five years old, and the idea of this kind of took hold of my imagination. All the questions that it opened up about you know sort of nature versus nurture, and you know how you could possibly know you know, what a child is going to be in adulthood by how he acts at the age of five. But anyway, it sent me to a lot of research about the topic. And as often happens when I have this kind of seed or germ and then the research follows, I started to hear the voice of Lana Granger, who's the protagonist of In the Blood. And when I sat down to write about her, all I knew about her was that she was a liar and that she had told so many lies about herself and her life that she wasn't even totally sure what the truth was anymore. So it was her voice that really brought me into the narrative of In the Blood. And so this is your third book set in the town called The Hollows. Tell us a little bit about what draws you to that particular setting. Well, The Hollows is a is a setting that sort of turned up in Fragile. And when it, like a lot of characters, I started to think of The Hollows as kind of a character um, when it turned up, I didn't really think that much of it. You know, I just thought it was this is the place where the story is set. And then over the course of the novel um, unraveling, I um, I started to have a real sense of this town and, you know, that it had a personality. And then, in fact, you know, it's almost sort of running a kind of an agenda, like an energetic agenda. It's not malicious necessarily, but it... Um, certainly has some kind of vibe that was palpable to me. And I've sort of um, been been there for a couple books exploring it and um, haven't, haven't quite been able to leave yet. It's not done with me, I guess. So 
Um, it's kind of a, it's been an interesting evolution. I've stopped thinking of it as a town and started sort of thinking of it as a, as a character. Well, uh, as you said, it was, uh, this was first started in, uh, in, in Fragile. And in the, you'd done a profile with us, uh, or I should say we profiled you a couple of weeks ago. And, yeah. uh, in the profile it said that, uh, there was an event in your life when you were a teen, an abduction in your town. How how have you dealt with this throughout the Hollows books? As you said, Hollows is a character. Well, it, it's interesting because that event um, was formative for me in a lot of ways. It's not to say that it haunted me necessarily, but it definitely is one of the things that um, happened in, in my universe that changed the way I saw the world. And so I was 15, and I was living in a town called Long Valley, New Jersey, and um, a girl that I knew was abducted and murdered, as you said. And, you know, the story the story stayed with me um, and sort of it tried to tell itself in a number of different ways. Um over the course of, you know, some partial manuscripts that just, you know, the voices never were able to resolve themselves into a novel. And so it wasn't until, just because of the way I write, you know, without an outline, it wasn't until about 25% into Fragile that I actually realized, oh, wow, Um, here it is. I'm I'm finally telling the story that has been sort of gestating for a really long time. And so I don't know what it was about that particular story and then, sort of the birth of, of this town, but, um, it, you know, it's sort of, my brother would swear that the Hollows is the, is the town that we grew up in, in New Jersey. Um, but yeah, he, but it's not that, of course, nothing is what it is. You know, everything in fiction is autobiographical and isn't at all, you know? Um, so it just has some energy to it that he, he feels that he recognizes. And I guess I can see his point, but, you know, it's just kind of its own place, but, you know, every story that is set in the hollows is unique and in the blood is you know a unique story that's sort of you know its own thing it just happens to be in this place where you know things are getting worked out i guess in my subconscious maybe (laughs) working things out in the hollows but the stories are all very individual so uh so with this book in the dark, I'm sorry, in the blood, you uh, did you take a different approach? Did you? It seems like you've you've ramped up the uh, psychological suspense, as you said, based on that article. Well, I don't know whether you know. There's not a lot of choice involved in my process. You know, my process is sort of. I don't have a lot of access to it. Weirdly, you know, like the woman who sits down to. Right. It's not the same one who then, you know, gets up and picks up her daughter from school and makes a sandwich. Like, those two people are not the same for some reason. And, you know, so the intensity of the story is inherent in, you know, sort of Lana's character. I believe that, you know, plot flows from character, and you can't really tell a story until you know the people that populate it. And so every book is an exploration of a person or people. And um, it's an answering of questions that I have about, you know, individuals and the world, the world at large. So the, the intensity in, in this book, the sort of intense psychological um, ramping up of the story is very much so inherent in, you know, the urgency of the character. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not like I would sit down and say, well, I'm really going to ramp it up this time. It's just that that is an, or, that was the organic way the story told itself. 
So looking back at the beginning of your career, your first four books, beginning with Angel Fire, you wrote under your uh, uh, birth name, Lisa Michonne. What led you to change to using your married name? Well, you know, I wrote um, three books featuring Lydia Strong. The first book featured a true crime writer by the name of Lydia Strong. And um, she, uh, like in between the third and the fourth book, I had this desire to write another book. I got a piece of um, uh, mail, right? It was like one of those flyers that, you know, those blue and white flyers that on one side is a advertisement and on the other side is a picture of a missing child. And um, I had this really bizarre thought, which was, what if I, you know, looked at this this age-graduated photograph of a missing child and I recognized myself? And that question was so powerful, and the thoughts that followed were, you know, so so consuming that I eventually started hearing the voice of Ridley Jones. And in between the third and the fourth Lydia Strong book, I wrote Beautiful Lies. Um, so when I... Um, when I finished Beautiful Eyes, I had sort of hoped that it would be the next book in, you know, that contract with my publisher at the time, but they didn't want it. So they exercised their right of first refusal on that book and, you know, asked that I write the book that I was contracted to write, which was the fourth Lydia Strong book, which I, you know, very much so wanted to do and did. Um, and in the meantime, my agent started shopping around, uh, beautiful Eyes, and it finally found a home at um, at Random House. And so, when that book came out, it was a very it was a very big change for me. It was a very different kind of book. It was written in a completely different way. It was just a whole other, you know, it was a whole other level for me. And so, um, at the time, you know, when I was when I first wrote my first novels, I was Lisa Michonne, and then. I was Lisa Unger because that's my married name and because they wanted a different, you know, they wanted a different outing for that book. We start, I started publishing under my, um, under my married name. And then, you know, I just sent an email to the five people that were reading my earlier books and <laughs> said, <laughs> like my grandma and stuff, you know, said, can you start reading me under this new name now? And they were all fine with that. So it was good. So In the Blood is your first book with Touchstone. Why did you switch publishers? Well, you know, and that's an interesting question too, because so the woman who bought Beautiful Eyes, Sally Kim, um, is now my editor again at Touchstone, and you know, we published a couple of books together at um, at uh, at Crown, which was you know Shay Earhart books, and then um, she left, and then I was edited by Shay Earhart and then by John Glossman, both you know amazing, fantastic editors. But Sally and I have always had a really special sort of editorial relationship. And when I had the opportunity to work with her again at Touchstone, I was just, you know, really thrilled to do that because, you know, that, that relationship that you have with your editor when it's great, it's, you know, it's very special. So I was happy to, happy to um, you know, to join her again at Touchstone. And you used to work in publishing. So how has that changed your writing career? Well, you know, publishing is sort of like, you know, what I did when I graduated from college because, you know, my dad basically said, listen, you know, I'll pay for your education, but when you graduate, you're off the payroll, you know, so please don't move 
home, you know, to write your first novel or travel around Europe to find yourself, just go to work, you know. And even though I had sort of always defined myself as a writer, I never really wanted to do anything else, you know. I didn't have the confidence to pursue that as a career at that time. And um, so I, you know, did what, you know, any sort of, you know, writing and literature major would be writer does. I went into publishing. And I wound up working in publicity for a lot of years. I mean, you know, um, almost 10 years. And, you know, during that time, I was kind of a, a closet writer um, and until I finally finished my my first book at, at 29 years old. And I think that, you know, having come up from the business side of things, I mean, I think I'm, I'm just a, I'm an educated uh, writer. You know, I know a lot about the business and it's helped me sort of keep centered, um, you know, through all the natural highs and lows of, of any career. So I, I feel like I have a lot of experience in the industry and, you know, it's really helped me keep a, keep a level head. And on your website, you say, my, no my novels center around strong women who find themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Why did you choose that particular focus for your books? You know, again, <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> I just have this. <laughs> I feel like probably a more accurate thing to say would be that, you know, my curiosity as a person and as a writer is human nature, right? That's the saying you know, for which I just have this voracious appetite. Like, I have this really strong desire to understand what makes people tick. And every book is sort of my answering questions that I have about the world and about people and about, you know, just all, all different kinds of questions related to the self and family. And, you know, and I think that what winds up happening is, you know, there's always, like, sort of one, you know, character that drive, drives draws me into the narrative, and that person, you know, usually is not not always, but is usually a pretty normal person, and uh, <laughs> not always, but usually. Right. But, you know, I feel like I write about, you know, crime. It's essentially crime fiction, and I feel like, you know, those sort of dark places are crucibles where, you know, the true nature of of the human psyche is revealed under these really pressurized circumstances. And so I think, you know, I just have this really dark imagination and this all this all these questions about um about what makes people tick. And I think it's just kind of a natural a natural place to explore um those kinds of questions. So I think that's why I, you know, wind up putting nice people in, in bad places. Now, you have a very active fan base, and, and uh, you seem to be, you know, to keep in contact with many of your readers, at least I've seen over the years. How, how does this affect your writing? I am, um, I, I also, I think of those things as two very different, um, two di very different parts of my brain. I guess I'm a little bit compartmentalized <laughs> when it comes to things. I enjoy that, you know, that there's the ability to connect with readers and booksellers and the, you know, the community of other authors, the community at large through Twitter and Facebook. You know, the act of being a writer um, is very solitary. It's very, you know, very inside your own head a lot of the time. So I think it's nice to have this place where you can, you know, connect in a, in a, in a way, in a real way, the way people are actually connecting with each other these days. And, um, and I think it's important that, you know, you are able to have that connection to the, to the world at large. But, you know, I think it's Stephen, you know, Stephen King that says, you know, that you write with the door closed. 
and and I and I really try to do that when I'm when when I'm at the when I'm at the keyboard, I'm at the keyboard and I'm, you know, not thinking about anything other than the characters that are sort of populating my head and what they're trying to tell me and to be as true to that story as I possibly can be. So the two things are, are very different and um and I try to try to keep it that way. I think, you know, the minute you're thinking about anything else other than the work when you're writing, um, you're probably sunk. And you mentioned your your curiosity about people and about human nature. Uh, I was just wondering, what have you learned through your curious explorations there? Have you ever learned anything that shocked you or that you maybe would rather not know? (laughs) That's interesting. I had a similar question yesterday. I, I have never been shocked by anything that I learned. I I have um I have some shocking characters in my books and and some of the things that they have um done or thought or um and or perpetrated onto others have you know I guess are shocking in a sense but you know I feel like I just have this very sort of clear-eyed vision about you know what people are and I try to treat my all my characters with compassion and with empathy, and when, um, and I think if you don't do that, if you seek to control or you're shocked or you, you know, sort of shut down at the, uh, at the idea of certain things, then you don't get the truth mm-hmm. from your characters. And, like, much in the same way that if you're judgmental and not compassionate and unloving with people in the world, you don't get the truth from them either. So I feel like, you know, as many answers as I get, I get more questions, and I think that if I learn anything, that there that there are as many, you know, individual stories and individual um, combinations of nature versus nurture, and you know, all of that, as there are people in the world, and that you know, the minute you have any kind of assumptions or um, fixed ideas about um, who said who does what for what reason, then you know, you're you're wrong. <laughs> So you have to always have your eyes open. So I think, if anything, my um, my work has, you know, allowed me to continue to observe and to, you know, keep asking questions even when I think I have answers. We've been talking with Lisa Unger. You can find her book, In the Blood, in stores right now. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino tells us about the spring and summer's most anticipated books, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino is here to give us the first look at PW's upcoming spring announcements issue. Hello, Louisa. Hi, Mark. Hi, Rose. Hi, it's great to have you here. So uh, the spring announcements issue is really for spring and summer, right? Yes. Tell tell us a little bit about what we're going to cover. Well, we're taking a look at the buzz books, the books that are anticipated, and we're covering a lot of categories. And we look at books that we think are going to be big sellers and that the publishers are really behind. And we pick the ones that we expect are going to work. So one of our main sections, of course, is fiction. And what's new this spring is there's lots and lots of 
debuts. In fact, we even do a first fiction roundup, which mm-hmm. will be coming February 10th, to really focus on debuts. But we have a memoir, not a memoir, I'm sorry, it's fictional, called Redeployment, a collection by Phil Clay, who's a Dartmouth graduate who served time in Iraq, Mm -hmm. and he's got some amazing stories about that. And there's Lauren Owen, whose debut is The Quick. It's a Victorian literary mystery with blurbs by Hilary Mantel and Tana French, so we're really excited about that. And there's some old standbys. Laurie Moore is back with a collection, Bark, and Emma Donahue of Room Fame with a new novel called Frog Music. Hmm. And it seems like, so you were talking about the debuts. We've got more debuts than maybe you've seen recently. I mean, it sounds like publishers are still really backing up the first fiction. Yes, well, everyone's always looking for the next big thing. Right. But what's exciting is there's many collections, mm, which right. are traditionally hard to promote. Right. But anything seems to go. And um, another big section is memoir. We have Edmund White back with this really gossipy story, My Years in Paris, Inside a Pearl. And Barbara Ehrenreich has a book about searching for truth. She came across a journal that she wrote as an adolescent, and she realized that she was always looking for the answers to what the universe is about and why we're here. So she did a lot of research and wrote this book called Living with a Wild God, a non-believer's search for the truth about everything. Hmm. And of course, she goes right to the top of bestseller list. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a memoir of the three Americans who were imprisoned in Iran, A Sliver of Light, and it's written in their three voices, so that should be interesting. And Hillary Rodham Clinton has a book called Hillary Rodham Clinton, New Memoir, that recounts her stint as Secretary of State, but also looks forward. So we're wondering what her plans are. Do you think it'll reveal something about presidential ambitions or lack thereof? Their suspicions, mm-hmm. yes. Because <laughs> she does have um, some solutions to the problems of the world. I'm surprised that nothing more definite has leaked from that. What, what's the publication date on that? Uh, June 1st. So we have a long time to sit here and wonder what she's going to say. Right. And don't forget Obama wrote a book before right. his presidency, mm-hmm. which uh, certainly right, didn't right. hurt. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And then there's travel, which kind of combines with memoir lots. And there's one that I'm really excited about. It's uh, Carsick, John Waters' Hitchhikes Across America. (laughs) Enough said. And there's another one called Shadows in the Vineyard, the true story of a plot to poison the world's greatest wine. It's a mystery Hmm. about a plan to destroy um, some very famous vineyard in France that produces the most expensive wine. So I think that could be fun. Oh, great. We'll be on the lookout for that one. Well, it sounds a bit like a true crime, almost. Yes, mm-hmm. it is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, who doesn't love wine? And then music, there's uh, Rock Soul and Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. who has a huge cult following and 
is getting older, so I think that <laughs> everyone will be interested in hearing from him. He's also touring at the moment. I just saw a, a billboard for it, so he's he's still out there okay. bringing in the audiences. Mm. That's wonderful. And Jesse Norman, the opera singer, yeah, there's a book. And um, Kiss Frontman? Yes. Paul Stanley. Great. That's Mark's specialty music. Music and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got some big books. Both of those... The last two you mentioned have about 100,000 announced uh, first printing. So looks like the publishers are have high hopes for those, too. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. when they get behind with yeah. those huge numbers. Yeah, and, and you're right about the Leonard Cohen. I mean, he's, as, as you said, Rose, he's still traveling, obviously, and touring. And uh, there are two books of his published, or, I'm sorry, two books about him published last year. And this season, there's three of them, which is, which is amazing for, for someone... Um, not as widely known, say, as... And from Canada. And from Canada, (laughs) exactly, exactly. (laughs) And there's cookbooks, and it seems that there's not so many TV stars this season. Usually they they dominate the cookbooking area because everyone watches TV and loves to watch them cook, and, you know, TV really makes personalities. Mm -hmm. So it's a little past the celebrities, and there's a lot... um, of books, not so much about diet, but about health. Yeah. And that may reflect an aging population. Yeah. And another big area, of course, is mystery and romance. There's erotica. I have a, the, I have an erotic travel book set in India, but I'm sure there's more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, the big trend in romance that I found when I was putting together the romance and erotica section of the announcements is that there are a lot of authors who published online first who are now coming into print. So either they published, uh, they self-published, or they were working with digital-only publishers or imprints. And and the publishers, the trade publishers, have kind of seen that as a as a proving ground. And so they take the people who have found success online, and then they bring them into print, knowing that that's kind of a guaranteed thing. So yeah. that's that's the big trend there. Yeah, and mystery always crosses over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, to literary fiction, and um, as we saw in travel. Well, it sounds like there's a little bit of everything. Well, there's a lot of categories. There's art and architecture. There's uh, performing arts. There's history. There's politics. And there's business and sports. Sports, yes. So in fiction, did you like what you saw, at least uh, initially? I did. I always like to see books by people with reputations, but I really like to see books by new authors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have our former PW Reviews editor has a book coming out, Mike Harfke, so we're excited about that as well. Yeah, exactly. I think that's in April, so. Right. Looking forward to seeing that. And you mentioned collections, um, which is interesting because I, I think of them as kind of a hard sell. And on the science fiction side, where I usually see a lot of short fiction, there's not so much of it anticipated this year. The last couple of years have been very big for collections in speculative fiction, and this year not so much. So it's it's interesting to see that trend kind of ebb and flow, depending on which part of the literary world you're looking at. Well, very few collections make it to the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. You know, famously, John Cheever used to do it. Mm. And I think a lot of these collections are bought out of the MFA programs. Mm-hmm. And they're usually two book deals, so they expect a novel, mm-hmm. which is sometimes right. unfortunate because not 
everyone can write a novel. Sometimes right. the gift, like Alice Munro, is just for short fiction. But we've even seen a few where it's a novel and a collection coming after. So it's an interesting time. What with you know people talking about the difficulties in publishing, there's still an awful lot of books coming out, and the publishers are taking a chance on new authors. Right. Well, it sounds wonderful. So this is going to be coming out uh, in PW uh, next week. Yes. This issue. Monday's issue. Yes. All right. Well, Louisa, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's always good to be here. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 